Welcome to the Broken to Unbroken podcast with Dr. Nick Askey, where we dive deep into how to eliminate pain and continue to train. All right, after some technical difficulties, I was able to get Tom Machado on the line for episode 21 of the Broken to Unbroken podcast. And I just want to go through a, a short, or it's hard to have a short bio with someone with your uh, pedigree with writing books and, and just reading research, clinical practice. So can you just give us a little bit of background on how long you've been in practice and uh, what your major accomplishments are just so that you can give the the listeners a little bit of a, a taste of who they're going to be listening to. Oh, sure. Not a problem. I've been in practice since 1982, which is a long time. When I was in my late twenties, I wrote a, started writing a book on the use of foot orthoses and manipulation for the management of lower extremity injuries. Uh, Williams and Wilkins published that in 93 and um, after that, I ended up with a, and since I started practicing, I've had a large running community that I've, I've treated. Um, and in probably mid to late 90s, I started traveling with the Kenyans. I worked on a lot of elite athletes with the Boston Marathon, made a lot of friends, and then just started working on a lot of different elite athletes, regular athletes. And I've just had a sports medicine practice. I've written a bunch of books, written a bunch of articles. Um, most recently, uh, Human Locomotion came out in 2012. And, you know, I was really happy with that textbook. It was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and it shows that you put some work into that because there are very few textbooks that I will read cover to cover. And that one is one that I just like sank my teeth into and, and read it cover to cover. Well, and I use it as a reference Nick, on almost a daily basis. So it means your wife is right. And you are in there because very few people read that book cover to cover. <laughs> yeah. And I, I heard about you through one of our other docs who was out in Washington and, and through the gate guys listening to their podcast. Cause they're huge fans of yours. Yeah. They're great. Uh, they're, they're, they're great. Uh, they are also huge nerds. So, yeah. Uh, but it is a great textbook and there's just tons of clinical information. And I tell people, I'm like, there's a lot of textbooks that you feel like you get ripped off as soon as you rip the cellophane off, but you could honestly charge three times what that thing is worth. And I would like push people to go buy it. So it's, it's a great well, bargain. Say that because my attitude is you write a book, that book probably took me 4,000 hours to write. And my attitude is I would give that book away to anybody who's really interested in it because and I'm like you, I'm tired of paying a lot for books and you get a little out of it. You don't write a book to make money. You write a book because you're fascinated with the subject. And, um, you know, I'm trying to set something up where students can get that book for next to nothing. I've got an, e an ebook version of it that uh, I'm, uh, it sells for, you know, like $35 because I want people to have the information and it's, it's good information. One of these days I'm going to do a second edition, but you know, that's probably a thousand or 2000 hours. And the illustration takes a lot of time, but again, it's, it's, it's enjoyable. I like doing it. Yeah. And it, it's fantastic to where I lecture you anywhere from six to eight weekends a year. And that book goes with me on every weekend lecture because I want people to be able to page through it and see everything in there and see how marked up and highlighted it is. And 
they're like on Amazon instantly buying it because they're like, okay, he got a lot out of this and has obviously used it. It doesn't look brand new by any stretch of the imagination. I know. It's nice when you get a book that you want to go through like that, you know, so, hey, thanks for the kind words. And another thing that really interests me is that you have have kind of bridged into the kind of the invention, like clinical innovation scene to where you're not just disseminating information with uh, textbooks or articles, you're, you're really kind of bridging into manufacturing and, and kind of tinkering with these different uh, DME devices, which are, I think I own almost all of them now. <laughs> uh, but one that I've been really uh, intrigued with lately is your Topro. Uh, and I'm going to just kind of preface what I use it for, and then you, I want you to kind of give us a little bit more in-depth explanation of it. Sure. But I was intrigued with it for people that get, they get frustrated if you give them 16 different rehab exercises for something. But I can have anything from a posterior tibial tendinopathy to a peroneal uh, tendinopathy to an ankle sprain to chronic heel pain. And it's like, okay, that's all you have to do. And they're like, well, what else, what other exercises? And I'm like, we're not going to add a bunch. This right. is all you have to do. Right. So it's a great catch all for those that get overwhelmed. Well, that was part of the reason that I made it. Uh, I've ever since that research came out that showed that people that are weak in their intrinsics are more likely intrinsic muscles of the arch are more likely to get plantar fasciitis and more likely to get four foot stress fractures. Karen Meckler, a researcher from Australia, showed that people, as they get older, um, the best predictor of falls as you get older, which 40% of people over 70 fall annually, the single best predictor of it is toe weakness. So I used to prescribe these complex TheraBand routines. It was a handout sheet, so it didn't take a lot of time to prescribe, but it took the people 40 minutes to do compliance at three months was less than 25%. And a couple of great papers came out showing that one in particular, for six months, they gave people TheraBand exercise to do classic, you know, like marble pickups, TheraBand pushdowns, short foot exercises. They three times a week, physical therapy supervised. At the end of six months, there was 0% improvement in the ability to push down with the tips of their toes. And that's important because another researcher from Australia showed for every 1% increase in pressure you generate beneath your big toe, you decrease a senior's fall risk by 7%. And that's when I came across that paper by Goldman, which I thought was fascinating. He was frustrated with the ability of uh, foot exercises to um, strengthen intrinsics. And what he ended up doing was just creating this simple isometric device where the toes were dorsiflexed uh, 25 degrees. Then he had people push for five seconds. They did 20 to 30 contractions. They got 40% strength gains in just seven weeks. So that's what motivated me to make that um, toe pro exercise platform. And that's, and I understand why there's a lot of these marble pickups and, and these toe flexor exercises. And I don't think they're as effective as the toe pro because they're giving you more leverage and more mechanical advantage with the tendons in an already shortened position. They definitely they bias the short flexors and, 
it's almost like you're taking an andreospina type approach of activating the muscle in a disadvantageous lengthened position so you can latch on to more neurologic control and strength gains. That's it's exactly, brilliant. It's a really good point, and it's a hot topic lately. In the last issue of Medicine and Science and Sports and Exercise, they reviewed the effect of isometric contractions in shortened with muscles in shortened and lengthened positions. And when a muscle is in a shortened position, the actin and myosin filaments have too much overlap. You don't stimulate the satellite cells to produce hypertrophy. But they think it's because of the physiological stress when actin and myosin filaments are separated, like when the toes are dorsiflexed, unlike with short foot and marble pickups, you have marked stimulation of satellite cells, which are like the stem cells of muscles to produce hypertrophy. You know, we're getting what Goldman did in his study, he got you know, four times the strength gains of conventional exercises when the muscles were isometrically stretched. He also, and importantly, got huge increases in horizontal jump distance in these people. That's why after I came out with the Toe Pro, a bunch of NBA teams contacted me. They're using it to improve horizontal jump distance in athletes. But yeah. I, I use it, like I originally developed it to prevent falls in the elderly. Um, now it's primarily used by athletes, runners, you know, improve performance. Yeah, and I think that if people were going to get better with a marble pickup or like short short foot exercises, like everyone who wears flip-flops would not have foot problems because they're constantly activating their, their flexors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I also like is a researcher named Piquet from uh, Memphis showed that as we age, once you hit 30, 35 years old, you get isolated weakness of the intrinsic muscles of the arch and leg. The calf, the ankle plantar flexors weaken disproportionately to other muscles. Um, and I talked about that previously where a guy named Booth did an interesting paper where he said, our genes for muscle reproduction were programmed 120,000 years ago, and they require a certain level of activity for the system to reboot and constantly remodel. Your hips to, and runners, especially the runners, still have the same activity in the hips that they did fifty thousand years ago. Same activity in the knee, but you know, fifty thousand years ago, we were barefoot from birth, so there was significantly more stress on the foot intrinsics on the cutaneous receptors. So, without that stimulation, um, the muscles don't respond by remodeling, and you end up with targeted weakness of the ankle plantar flexors and the foot intrinsics and we wear shoes that are too rigid. We, we, we just block sensation to the bottom of the foot. So we have isolated weakness of, and it's, it's all overlooked by almost everyone of the intrinsic muscles of the foot and arch. So the, the rep scheme in the studies and what you recently referenced a study that was done uh, by one of your friends that had some pretty astronomical strength gains in a pretty short period of time with the toe pro. Right. So can you cover that? And then also the rep scheme that you're looking for? Cause I, I know that you want those in pretty close proximity to where it's not like a set in the morning, set in the evening, yeah, set midday. Good point. That was the paper. That was a pilot study done by Matt Dillnott. He's down at, in Australia. He's affiliated with La Trobe University. He got 300% strength gains in 12 weeks using the TOPRO and the intrinsics. And it's starting up in a, about four weeks. Temple University, the podiatry biomechanics department there, is going to do a six-week study of strength gains using the TOPRO. They're going to be measuring force output beneath the toes 
during the gait cycle. So it's going to be an active. It's not just does it strengthen, does it do the strength gains apply and, and function during the gait cycle, which is important. A couple of studies on valgus collapse and knees have shown that if you give hip abductor exercises, hip rotator, you can get 50% strength gains in, in 8 to 12 weeks. But then you do 3D motion analysis on them, and they continue to have valgus collapse because you haven't taught the muscles how to fire. So that's where you have to do like proprioceptive training. You have to do some gait retraining. And with the toe pro, I have people in addition to doing the foot exercises, and I'll explain sets and reps in a second. I have them practice, utilize forcefully pushing down with their toes 10 minutes twice a day. But I came up with the four times 25 protocol with only a 30 second rest between sets um, based on some beautiful research where they used MRIs to measure muscle volume. In this group, it was young, healthy people, but they did the classic Delorme, you know, four sets of 12, high 90% full effort, four times a week. And then they had people go to 35% full effort so they could do 25 before they fatigued, take a short rest, and then repeat it. They showed you got greater increases in muscle volume with the four times 25 protocol. And I talk about it in online. I wrote that paper on ways to prevent age-related muscle loss. What I found interesting about that was when you have just a 30-second rest between sets and you're doing sets of 25, you create a hypoxic environment where lactic acid builds up, pyruvic acid. Muscle tension is like squeezing a wet sponge. Fluid can't get in. And apparently growth hormone is stimulated in an acidic environment. So one of the factors that you really have to look at with this is um, how can we trick the muscle into reproducing and getting as thick as possible? And that's where the other thing, I don't want to go off target, but we were talking about blood flow restriction training. You can have someone do very light resistance exercises or even put them on a bicycle and go at 30 or 40% full effort. If you put a strap on that's the equivalent of 70 to 90 millimeters mercury, you can get huge increases in muscle volume that match the increases that you get with heavy weight training. In fact, a paper just came out, and I'm writing an article on it now, showing that vascular endothelial growth factor also increased when you put a, a brace on someone, and light resistance brace, and you increased aerobic capacity um, while exercising at a very low resistance. Really fascinating. So like perfect protocols for injured people, perfect protocols for the elderly. And I spent about two years looking for a material that I could make a nice blood flow restriction strap. I finally got it. I had it manufactured in the U.S. And it has three, I'll send you a couple. It has three separate locking points with Velcro. So you can adjust the tension to anywhere from 60 to 100 millimeters mercury compared to a blood pressure cuff. So you can do blood flow restriction training. I'm working on something now doing blood flow restriction training while doing the toe pro because yeah. the strength gains you get are, are shocking. Yeah. And we have the, one of the pioneers of blood flow restriction training, Johnny Owens, right down the street from me. And I had him on the podcast recently and it's just amazing because it started off with the kind of the limb salvage, kind of the military realm. And now it's bridging into uh, kind of where its roots were in kind of the, the fitness and wellness world. And there's a ton of great applications for post-joint replacement, people that are timid to move a lot of weight around or they're not 
cleared to move a lot of weight around. Yeah, ACL. Get a lot rehab. of strength. Yeah, ACL rehab and the elderly. I mean, tendons stiffen as you get older. You can't have someone who's 80 years old doing, you know, four sets of 90% full effort. Yeah, and the the worst thing you can do for someone with chondromalacia patella, grade three or four, is put them on a leg extension machine and go full range of motion with a lot of load. You're just going to light them up and you're going to be constantly taking fluid out of their knee. Well, a paper came out in Journal of Orthopedic and Sports Physical Therapy two years ago that trainers don't like. They measured retropatella pressure with different angles of a squat. And once you, and I'll send you the paper if you're interested, once you went past 45 degrees knee flexion, pressure skyrocketed. You were seven times body weight when you were in a thigh horizontal squat. So I personally, if I'm dealing with any retropatella problem, I'll have people exercise zero to 45, um, you know, blood flow restriction or not. Uh, and then I'll, I'll do the four times 25 with 30 second rests. And you get, you know, the same improvements that you get without, with squats without the risks. But people love squats. So for whatever reason, I, I've always hated deep squats, especially with people with retropatella problems, unless they have really wide patellas and are just perfectly aligned. Yeah. So is there anything else you want to cover on the toe pro before we move on to the next topic? Yeah, the toe pro originally came out. Uh, I was working on different ways to strengthen um, the intrinsic muscles. And I had different versions of this back in the 90s. And then mid to late 90s, a guy named Reber came out with a paper where they had runners vary from slow running speeds to full out sprinting with EMG sensors buried in the different muscles. Most people would have, I expected, a linear increase in gastroc and soleus as their speed increased. But gastroc and soleus hit a certain level. Then as they ran faster, the peroneals had greater increases in activity. And the research said, pay attention to the peroneals if you want to get people running faster. And at the time, I was treating a lot of pros. I was traveling with the Kenyans. And I made a series of like platforms that were tilted in the frontal plane down 15 degrees. So it was like, you know, on a, you know if you run on a beach, if the, if the downhill side is on your left, your left peroneus longus and brevis are screaming by the end of the run. Yeah. I made a series of platforms that were inverted, and I just had them do like jumping and heel raises on that. And then when I read Goldman's stuff, you know, a couple, two or three years ago, I just made a single device that's, it's, you know, it's, it's small, it dorsiflexes the toes 25 degrees, it has a ridge for flexor digitorum brevis, it tilts backward to get gastroxoleus, but it also tilts to the side to get the peroneals. And when you raise up, you target every muscle with, it would take you 45 minutes to do the same thing with uh, TheraBands. And, you know, you do the four times 25 relatively quick. I have people do a 60-second hold in a lengthened position at the end. I just added that based on the research on isometrics. And um, it takes, takes five minutes. And it's just it's quick, it's easy, and compliance is high. Yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. And that's one thing that really surprised me reading through your article is one of the, the – the best predictors of chronic heel pain from a correlation standpoint was peroneal weakness. Yeah, that was that paper by Sullivan. That just came out Foot Ankle International in 2015. 200 people with chronic heel pain, 70 controls. They looked at everything, occupation, pronation, everything. Pronation had no correlation with heel pain. Weight had little correlation with it. Toe weakness, 
limited ankle dorsiflexion, tight gastroc, and weak peroneals. That I when I saw that I thought is it that's that's completely overlooked. And uh, I've been giving peroneal exercises since I read that paper, and it, it's definitely working. People are getting better at a quicker rate. And it makes sense clinically on how why you see a lot of mysterious heel pain show up after an inversion sprain and. You can make that connection with that article. Especially if you think about pronius longus coming down behind the lateral aspect of the leg behind the fibula and attaching to the base of the first met. When pronius longus fires, it pulls that, it plantar flexes that first metatarsal head down with a lot of force, which greatly offloads the plantar fascia. So, you know, it, it, I, over, I didn't pay as much attention to pronius longus, but I do now. Yeah. And what is it, like 40% load? takes yeah. off. Yeah, you're good. So the the thing that really intrigued me, and I heard you on the, uh, it was another podcast, and you were talking about the focal muscle vibration. And while I was listening to that, I got on the website and, and bought some of these because I'm like, I have to play with these. Yeah. And uh, can you talk a little bit about the study that inspired that and then some just what it all entails and what you're looking for when you're testing people with these? Yeah. The researcher is Kurt Clays. He's works with a couple of other PT PhDs in Belgium. And I looked up the history of, of where they even got the idea from, because it just seemed odd when I saw it. But when you, as you mentioned, when you look at their research, these guys are geniuses and the research is phenomenal. What they theorized was that when you stand with your eyes closed, as you know, your um, the muscle spindles, the proprioceptors in your core and the proprioceptors in your calf work to tell your central nervous system where you are in space. So these researchers theorized that if you could shut off the proprioceptors in the calf, you could evaluate core proprioceptors. So they've found research dating back to the 60s where they showed the annulospiral nerve endings, the components of the spindles, will become, you can produce presynaptic inhibition of these receptors by oscillating the skin at 0.5 millimeters with 60 um, cycles per second. So the Kurt Clays and a couple of other researchers from Belgium did a test where they separated low back pain patients from non-low back patients. It was blinded. And when they put those little spin, the vibrating tools on the people's calves, by producing presynaptic inhibition of the calves, the calf muscle sends a signal to the spinal cord saying we're lengthening. If you have good core proprioceptors, which would give you the feeling you were falling forward, if you have good core proprioceptors, your central nervous system ignores that data and says, we're not falling forward because I can tell we're balanced. You know, the shoulders are over the pelvis. But if you have bad core proprioceptors, you believe your calf, you think you're falling, so you lean over backwards. You'll lean back six or seven uh, centimeters. And these researchers were able to successfully differentiate low back pain patients from non-low back pain patients, which had never been done. MRIs don't predict it. You know, nothing predicts it. Um, they then got funding and did a second study where they took over 100 asymptomatic people they tested them for fear avoidance behavior. They tested them for posture. They looked at alignment. And they did the little vibrating motor test, which takes 20 seconds. It's a simple test. They then followed these people for two years. And the best predictor of future injury was those little vibrating motors. 
it told you if you were going to get hurt because you had poor proprioception or your core. They then did another series of exercises looking at how do you fix that. And they showed diaphragmatic exercises can fix it. I've been studying it for a while. You know, McGill's core exercises fix it. You know, there's a whole range of things. But, you know, you get the patient involved. You try different things. And then you retest them. It, it's fascinating. I love those little things. Yeah, and that's what we've been doing, too, is I don't want to give someone an exercise that isn't going to provide objective value. So we'll try a single exercise for a trial period of five to seven days, and then we can retest them. And if it doesn't change that test, then it's like, okay, you don't like uh, prone core work. Let's do some supine core work. So you get a little bit more feedback with your lumbars into the, into the floor or you're using the wrong muscles because you're not getting the gains out of this exercise uh, from the the objective tests. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I've been testing out is I will put it on my plantar fasciitis or heel pain patients. And if they have a pretty dramatic result, I will give them accessory core work, even if there's nothing glaring on their gait analysis, because if they stand for work, uh, they could be overloading their calves from a proprioception standpoint due to a core deficit. And we won't know that unless we, uh, unless they really have an obvious recurvatum posture uh, but you see these people, they're always like, oh, my calves are always tight. My calves are always tight. I stretch them. I roll them. I do all this stuff. Right. We, we put that on there and then we're like, okay, you obviously need to do some core work because your core is living in your calves. That, in fact, a trainer from a professional basketball team got in touch with me recently and he's having his athletes put the little device with a battery pack on their calves while they do different core balance drills to kind of shut off input to make them focus on their calves, which I hadn't done and I thought it was pretty clever. But you were just talking about core and foot ankle injuries. A paper came, I just came across a paper in American Journal of Sports Medicine where they measured hip rotator strength while seated. And if you couldn't get 20% or generate 20% of your body weight, uh, a dynamometer was put near the medium alveolus. Um, They were seven times more likely to tear an ACL in one season. But I looked up the original paper that that was um, based on. The number one injury that they got with weak hip rotators was foot ankle. So like you were saying with core, it's it's a chain and you got to look at the whole. And it's nice to have a tool that allows you to objectively say that's what it is. Yeah. And I think you'll get a lot of buy-in with a patient if they see how screwed up they are on this test. And otherwise they're like, oh, he's just giving me more crap to do. Uh, But if they see how much they sway and we've got a couple of good examples in the office, like uh, the guy who does my rehab, like he's just, he's rock solid and he, he doesn't budge a single centimeter on that test. Yeah. So they're like, no one can do that. And I was like, all right, we'll throw him on him. And he's, he's kind of used to it to where he doesn't budge because I mean, he moves well. Right. Uh, and, and it doesn't budge him at all. But if they see how they're not good at that, then you're going to have some buy-in with the patient, better compliance. Well, with that Topro thing that I made, I, I you're probably familiar with the old paper grip test for checking intrinsic. So you put a, a paper card beneath a business card 
beneath the second through fourth toes and tell the people to stop you from pulling out. A friend made from Australia, Hilton Men, popularized that test 10 or 15 years ago. I modified it and made a card that had similar resistance, a plastic card. I angled it to match the angle present between the second through fifth. And now I check strength beneath the second through fifth with a dynamometer so I can actually measure toe strength. And I do it from the second through fifth toe, and then I do it beneath the great toe. And they have to get 10% of their body weight beneath the great toe. Some people are so bad at it, it's shocking. And if you have a number like two, and they should be 15 or 20, it motivates them to do the exercise. And also, you compare the two sides. Uh, a side with chronic plantar fascia problems will have, you know, 50% strength deficits that they were unaware of, and no one told them about. And no one, they gave them stretches, but no one's given them appropriate exercises. So it definitely yeah. helps to have feedback. And that dynamometer is, is great. I have one in the office before I got yours. Uh, I just kind of tinkered with one with some of those building entry cards in a luggage scale. Yeah. But the nice thing about yours is yours stores the highest readings. So you don't have to like look at it as it's pulling out of the patient's toes. Yeah, it was hard uh, to find that one, yeah. I think that that's a great feature because it stores it versus you having to like look at it super close and kind of guess on what the highest reading was. Yeah, because patients can't see it as well either. It's upside down, but with peak hold, you give them three trials and the peak hold stays there. And yeah, it, you know, very reproducible and um, and patients really like that feedback. And they also see if they're getting better. Someone will come in after three months and I'll say, you haven't been doing your exercises. And they'll go, yeah, I know. Um, and it, it's, it's nice to see it. So anything you want to cover on that topic before we move on to uh, the shoe talk? No, other than if you have that toe dynamometer, uh, you can just get an ankle strap attachment for it. That paper that I was talking about where um, you could measure American College of Sports Medicine, they predicted ACL injuries by measuring hip strength. I just took that toe dynamometer that you have and hooked an ankle strap up to it after I saw that MJ Sports Med paper. You have the patient seated. You put the cuff around their ankle and have them pull in. They have to get 20% of their body weight. Anybody with chronic posterolateral hip pain, anybody with chronic piriformis, anybody with chronic valgus collapse, even high-level athletes will score 15% of their body weight. It is really overlooked. And I give certain protocols, uh, Kim Nadeau, N-E-D-E-A-U, has a, a, a YouTube video of specific hip exercises that I like. And then I have them flip sidewards. You put the strap around their knee 10 centimeters above the joint line, and they have to get 35% of their body weight with that. And that's, that's a quick test, especially the piriformis one. And you will get information that you couldn't get anywhere else. And athletes love it. People love it because it gives you a target, especially the chronic hip pain. You know, years ago, a paper came out where they looked at 30 chronic lower extremity injuries, um, and they wanted to see which ones took the longest to heal, plantar fasciitis, four months, greater iliotibial band syndromes, you know, 12 weeks. Uh, tendomyofasciitis of the piriformis glutamide stuff lasted almost a year and a half. So it's, it's, it's a difficult injury to treat, especially in runners. And I feel it's because people don't look at that strength balance. You know, you've got to generate 20% of your body weight. Yeah, that that's going to be interesting. I'm going to start testing that and kind of building a mental database, especially for my really almost dysplastic 
hip patients that have the antiverted hips and they, they have a harder time latching onto a glute to stabilize the anterior hip. Yeah. Especially the antiverted hip patients, you know, it's the, the worst ones are ones with antiverted hips and external tibial torsion. Because yeah, I call extra, those nightmare knees. They're yeah. always in dancers too. It's crazy. Well, they'll walk with their feet straight and because they have external tibial torsion and it alters the length tension relationship in piriformis. So even if they are strong, they will, they will test weak because actin and myosin filaments don't overlap. So with them, in addition to strengthening, you have to teach them to walk and run with a slight toe out. And no one looks at external tibial torsion. I mean, to do that, all you have people do is lie face down, bend the knees 90 degrees, put the feet horizontal. The feet should parallel the thigh. You know, there's only been one paper ever written on it. And they say it's present in 5% of the population. I think it's present in 20% of the population. Oh, yeah. The, one of my mentors in, in Cairo school, I uh, taught us health vets test right off the bat. And I've been looking at tibial torsion ever since it was a very valuable clinical pearl. Cause you need to look at the knee in multiple planes because it's the rotational plane where things get hairy. Yeah. I think it predicts ACL injuries and it's completely overlooked. You know, I was at a conference, Tim Hewitt, he's the world's leading ACL person. Um, and came up with all the, the protocols that decrease ACL injury rates, 90%, you know, jumping, all these different agility drills. He had a person demonstrating the exercises, and she probably had 40-degree external tibial torsion, and no one said, when you land, land with toe out. I don't, no one pays attention to it, even the big names. And they tend to look a little kind of wacky with their mechanics. I've got a volleyball player up at uh, Villanova, and they were – they kept getting on her about keeping her feet straight and all this other stuff. And I'm like, she can't like, yeah. you want her to get an FAI too? Yeah. Cause that's well, what's going to happen. They don't know the correlation. I've never talked to anybody, especially orthopedists that, that even pay a slight attention to tibial torsion. And in fact, they'll usually say, you know, you have to walk with your feet straight and walk around your feet straight. And, and they put all these orthotics to boost them up into more supination, which that puts them into more external tibial torsion. And it's just like, I can't win. Like yeah. they're going to pronate. That's yeah. just, that's part of it. Yeah. yeah. Not necessarily bad. So speaking of that, I, I get questions all the time about, I mean, we're kind of through the minimalist craze if you're on the forefront of things, but I mean, Back eight years ago, everyone was going and buying Vibram five fingers and running out and fracturing their toes and blasting their calves up. And, and like, we almost had this, like, where people would turn their nose up at people that actually ran in, in normal running shoes or motion control shoes. Uh, what is your stance? Because I know you have a pretty closely tied background to orthotics. And I know there are some cases where they are needed, but can you kind of give your your enlightened opinion on when how we strike a balance between everybody running around with no shoes on and then everybody like sporting a Brooks Beast? Yeah, yeah. Well, my how I look at that is that there is a certain foot type that does beautifully with minimalist training. They've got wide forefeet, they've got large ranges of ankle dorsiflexion, and they've got strong toes. My beef with minimalist training, the minimalist shoes, was that it was based on, you know, born to run. It was based on Lieberman's, the evolution of Homo erectus. And they talked about how we were born to run and we, we need that 
those cutaneous receptors to stimulate our intrinsics for stability. But what they didn't get into was that lifelong barefoot populations have completely different bony architecture because the, between the ages of four and nine, you grow a sustentaculum talli on your calcaneus, your, your metatarsals become significantly wider. The forefoot is 16 to 18% wider in lifelong barefoot people. And when you look at the phalanges, the phalanges are you know 15 to 20% wider. Those wide bones can take that force. If you are distributing pressure over a small area, say you have a narrow forefoot and you have a tight calf, mm -hmm. D. Giovanni, a researcher, has demonstrated time and time again that if you have a tight gastrocnemius muscle, it produces an early heel lift, and that early heel lift drives the forefoot into the ground, especially if you have a hypermobile first ray. That, in turn, can cause stress fractures in the second metatarsal. It can cause all sorts of bony injuries. I can look at a person's foot, and if they tell me they're transitioning to a minimalist, I can say, you will fracture a metatarsal. But on the same, at the same time, if someone's got a wide forefoot, they're strong, good ankle range of motion, you can't beat them for strengthening intrinsics. You, know, it, you will get stronger intrinsics if you train with them. So it's, it's about a balance. Brooks Beast, you know, you read that injury-free book I wrote. You know, yeah. this, it, it goes back to the 80s. Hannah and Robbins, you know, that's what I didn't like about a lot of the Born to Run stuff. Um, that research goes back to you know, 30 years ago, where these two phenomenal researchers, one was from McGill, I believe, they had people uh, jump off platforms wearing motion control shoes that had really thick midsoles. One simple test, they just had them walk across a four-inch balance beam. If you put too much midsole cushioning beneath them, you impaired proprioception. They had altered motor responses. They were much more likely to get hurt. If you had them jump off of a certain height, 31 centimeters, they hit the ground harder because they didn't feel things. But the problem with the Brooks Beast is that it impairs proprioception. It's always been like the shoe that I have hated the most uh, because it's just too bulky. Also in the late 80s, that's, you know, I've been doing this too long and everything just gets rehashed and you think they resolved that 30 years ago. The really rigid shoes with heel external heel counter supports snap your foot down quicker. And it's not the range of pronation that hurts people. It's the velocity of it. So if they're strong and they're flexible, they can handle rapid pronation. The people I use orthotics for, if it's a professional who's doing 100 miles a week, they've got a, like a neutral, slightly pronated foot, I match it to the injury. They have a medial tibial stress syndrome. They, they have you know, a plantar fascial problem. I'll put a, a two-degree varus post, a semi-flexible shell in there um, to decrease the velocity of pronation to distribute pressure over a broader area. And this is what some of the minimalist craze and why it's not around anymore. They switched to Hoko where you have, you know, negative flares in the forefoot, rocker bottoms in the forefoot. They went the opposite route. Although I, I like Hoka for the most part because it's light and good energy absorption. Um, you can just get into trouble if you cushion things too much. So that fine balance it's based on foot architecture. It's based on strength um, and, you know, patient preference. And some things that I've been tinkering with for like the last, I think, five, six years is I've been putting some of these patients uh, that are a little bit more athletic and younger uh, and even some of my, my more elderly patients in the barefoot science inserts. Have you seen those? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
I, I like the concept of like, okay, this is a foot gym and we're going to train your intrinsics with every step with some biofeedback so that you don't need Crocs in the shower every time or treating your floor like it's hot lava. Don't touch it. Like, yeah. I think it's a more empowering strategy for a patient. No, that's a good idea. Balance Pro makes something similar for older people. They showed that as you get older, you lose, you know, 60, 70% of your cutaneous receptors, the Merkel and Meisner's corpuscles. And that makes it so you don't feel when your center mass starts to shift in your foot. So it increases the likelihood that they're going to fall. So Balance Pro, a PhD um, researcher from Canada, made this thin insole where he puts a ridge around the edge and then he has an elevation in the middle. And when you shift your weight to the side, the older people can feel it. Um, some early data showed that it, it decreased falls, but lately the insoles that increase proprioception haven't been shown to be doing that well, I think in part because people adapt to them over time. You know, a great paper came out that I loved. I'll send it to you. They looked at proprioception and balance, um, and they had two groups. One got plantar massage to the foot, intrinsic muscles, and the other got foot manipulation. Both treatments took, you know, five to ten minutes. And they have, for the massage one, they just have, like, I give it out to people, like a description of how it's done. They then evaluated people. The, the people who got foot massage could do closed eye balance better after the foot massage. The people who got manipulation had improved functional performance. They had better anterior reach tests. You know, theoretically, if you did both, you'd really get a good outcome. But I, I really liked that paper because it showed you can stimulate receptors with mobilization manipulation, which, you know, researchers out of Spain showed that 10 years ago, a foot manipulation improved center of pressure patterns in the foot, um, enhances proprioception. And it was, I thought that was interesting because it showed a different effect between manipulation, mobilization, and massage. One worked on cutaneous receptors, enhanced proprioception. The other enhanced motor output. You had better reach scores, which asymmetry in reach, you know, is, is you're six times more likely to be injured if you have a four centimeter asymmetry in anterior reach. Yeah, that's that's pretty huge. Yeah. yeah. So now we're on the topic of running and, and injuries, and I just wanted to pick your brain because I consider this kind of going straight to the horse's mouth because anything running or lower extremity related, I usually start with you and kind of cherry pick what you've already done for research. Mm -hmm. uh, but what would you say to our running listeners, the three highest value things they can focus on uh, for injury prevention? Uh, and you can kind of go with anything from uh, rehab or training strategies or anything that you can think of, just kind of the three highest value things that a runner could focus on. Well, over the last 20 years, over and over, every paper when they look at injuries, they'll look at miles, they'll look at intensity, they'll look at weight, they'll look at body composition. In fact, we were talking about barefoot running someone or minimalist running. Someone showed the best predictor of success with minimalist training was being light. Light people didn't get hurt when they ran in minimalist shoes. If you have a 180-pound, six-foot marathon runner, the best predictor they get hurt is putting them in a minimalist shoe. But Pounds equal pain. Yeah, yeah. What I think is the best predictive the prior injury. If you have had any injury in the past, the best predictor of future injury is always prior injury. So whenever I get an athlete who gets an ankle sprain, same with you, you, you have to rehab it completely. 
most people, something simple, they get a band, they get a piriformis, they get an ankle sprain, they'll do some simple stretches, they'll, they'll wait it out, and then they'll get back to running. If you don't fix it, it's going to come back. So the best predictor of a future injury is prior injury and failure to completely rehab. And to completely rehab, you have to enhance motor output, mobilization, manipulation. You have to um, do strength training. Um, and you have to address asymmetries and flexibility. Another predictor, and I just kind of went into it, is strength training. Runners are really good at, at doing things that increase their aerobic capacity. They love them. They're good at them. They all have high VO2. A lot of them don't like putting the time in to do strength training. That paper that just came out in AMJ Sports Medicine, if you can't get 20% body weight while seated, and I look at toe strength. If you can't generate 10% of your body weight beneath your big toe, you are significantly more likely to be injured. The HIPS protocol showed that you were seven times more likely to tear an ACL and much more likely to have foot-ankle hip injuries. So strength training is number two. And then form. That's the simplest, I hate to say it. Everybody makes a big deal about, do you have a forefoot strike, rear foot, mid foot, blah, blah. All that matters is that you don't overstride and you minimize your braking phase. And a lot of nice research is showing you don't even need to have high-tech equipment to do that. When If you put someone on a treadmill and they have high braking forces, a paper just came out showing that they looked at vertical force, they looked at acceleration, they looked at time to load. Um, peak braking force was the single best predictor of injury in women. They were seven times more likely to be hurt if they had high peak braking forces. And to fix that, you need to shorten their stride length. You need to um, give them gait modifications. And you also need to improve hip flexibility and strength. You know, I, I'll always use the analogy, if you were catching a fastball thrown by a professional baseball player at 90 miles an hour, if you keep kept your elbows locked and your shoulders stiff, that would hit your glove and make a cracking sound that would hurt. But if at the moment the ball hits you, you bent your elbows and pulled your shoulders in, you'd be able to catch it without damaging your hand. It's the same thing with running. When they look at how the world's best runners absorb shock, they don't absorb it with foot pronation. They absorb a little bit with knee flexion. They absorb it with posterior rotation of the hip. So every runner I treat, if, if they're especially doing 60, 70 miles a week, I have them focus on like modified pigeon uh, poses to stretch, um, stretch out their hips, but specific hip rotator strengthening exercises. There's a couple of videos that I put up online um, that show my favorite ones. Again, a trainer, Kim Nadeau, I work with, um, put together a series of exercises. It works they're really helpful. But those are the, the big things. Strength. Uh, poor form with high uh, peak breaking forces and failure to rehab a prior injury. Yeah. And I'm glad I'm in the, in the same camp as you, cause you've put in a lot of time and done a lot of research in this area. And the big thing with, with my runners is I have them go run with a metronome and see what their cadence is. And cause it's hard to overstride with a high cadence. Yeah. 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 That run tempo I use, I usually have them set it at 180, but you know, that's, that's a nice target goal. And what I, I tell people is that the faster you run, the harder it gets. So you can run slow with a cadence of 1185. But if you want to run faster, if you put someone on a treadmill and said run faster, 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 the limb weighs 25% of body weight. Cadence can only go to a certain point. Then you increase speed by progressively opening up your stride length. You know, you can't tell 
a 210 marathon runner to run with a shoe, land with your foot, you know, four centimeters in front of your center of mass. They, they have nine foot stride lengths. Bolt, the world, as a sprinter, he's got a 16 foot stride length and a cadence of 250. Um, so you really have to address the structure. It's not just enough to give a, a standard routine. Put set your running metronome on 180 and don't go past it. Yeah, and the crazy part with Bolt is he's got a scoliosis and a, a leg that's like three eighths of an inch shorter. It's it's insane. Yeah. Bill Rogers, I, I I was treating him in the eighties. He had like a, almost a full inch limb length discrepancy, and never did anything about it. He just ran. They're just really tough. Bolt is also famous for being extremely asymmetric in his landing forces, um, which is interesting. Yeah, I know the Gate guys did a whole podcast on. All right. If somebody is that elite, it, do you mess with their symmetry versus asymmetry, or could you make the best in the world even better by trying to make him more symmetrical? It was a very interesting discussion. Well, I remember Meb Kapleski. I saw him a, a bunch of years ago, and he did some gate stuff where he had, when viewed from behind, one foot was towed out a little bit, and he he worked on form. His belief was that you can make yourself better. And, you know, he's an amazing athlete and a really just a great person. Um, so he did tinker with it. But, you know, I don't know if I'd mess with Bolt. <laughs> no. You know, he's, he's doing, he's, he did pretty well in his career. Yeah, I guess his, uh, his pro soccer aspirations are over. And that may be something that his asymmetries may have caught up with him or it could just be a technical piece that he has to go multiple directions. Oh yeah. Also just time, you know, you can only do that sport for so long before things catch up with you. So one last question that it was more of a question for me kind of being selfish. Uh, like I've been at this for a fraction of the time that you've been, uh, I'm about nine years out now, uh, at the end of this month, and it's just really inspiring to see someone who's been at it since practically when I was born yeah. and you're still tinkering, you're inventing, you're reading, you're learning, you're growing. Like I constantly have to like just learn new stuff to avoid the rut and the burnout and going through the range of motion, just kind of going through the motions. Uh, and what strategies do you have for doctors out in the field to where they don't kind of settle into this rut of mediocrity, boredom, and burnout so that they can kind of be the best physicians and best doctors that they can be for their patients. I think that would be very valuable advice coming from someone in your situation. That's a great question. I've been doing this, like I said, 37 years. I just find it fascinating. I personally have dealt with burnout because people can wear you down. Um, I have dealt with it by just reading and trying to understand how the body works. And this is, I feel, the best time to practice in all the years I've been at it. You know, 30 years ago, you get these pedantic lecturers saying, this injury is caused by this, and you need to do this as if it was carved in stone. But now they can do three-dimensional imaging. You get those like PT researchers from Belgium that show that vibration alters proprioception. There's a greater awareness of the effect between mechanoreceptors and motor output and ways to evaluate it. So I've avoided burnout by just trying to always figure things out. You take it to the office, you apply it to somebody, someone who isn't getting, wasn't getting better, does get better. 
And that's a nice cure for burnout. Um, because if all you do is the same thing all the time, shoot me, I'd rather be painting houses. Um, you've got to, you've got to look at the body as a puzzle. And, you know, I, I started working fewer hours just, you know, about a year ago and that I would recommend, I wish I did it earlier. It's given me more time to read. Um, you know, financially it makes it a little bit tougher if you're only working, you know, three, 10 hour days, but it allows me to keep up with the literature at an even greater rate. And I just, I just have always found this information fascinating. I've always liked this field. It's a it's a very humbling field to be in because you can't just get to the top of the mountain where the air is crisp and go, I have figured it out. <laughs> uh, because then the humbler patient will come in to see you and really, uh, really kind of make sure that you are humble. Like the, the CEO of our company has a, a great quote. And he said, there's two types of people in the world, those that are humble and those that are about to be. <laughs> that's perfect it's totally true that's why you have to keep an open mind about everything and and not look at it as if it's carved in stone you know that's why i that first book i wrote in the 90s you know 10 years after i wrote it i discovered that pretty much everything i had in it was wrong <laughs> so i just i redid it and i put in a lot of work and and said okay well this that's why i said it's it's nicer now to practice because there are some amazing researchers out there looking at phenomenal stuff like that we were talking about with diaphragm strength and low back pain. No one ever looked at that. And the fact you can measure blood flow when someone has a weak diaphragm, it, it's pretty neat. So, yeah, I just keep an eye on things, keep up with the literature and experiment. And, you know, it's fun. Yeah, the people that volunteered for that study must have not read the fine print. <laughs> Yeah, whenever they're embedding things, you know you're going to be in trouble. Yeah. You know, the surgical pins that they embedded in people in the 80s and 90s to measure three-dimensional motion, now they just insert tantalum beads. In the old days, they drilled holes in bones and put screws in them to see how things move. So it's gotten a lot easier on people, too. Yeah, and I think that it's it, – you take that – I think it was a Mark Twain quote, like the people that don't read are no better than the people who can't. And I think that the research is out there. It's ripe for the picking. Yeah. And I think that it just takes uh, someone who's who's motivated to dig into it and not being satisfied and complacent with being confused and just kind of going down the rabbit hole uh, with some of these humbling patient cases. And I know that's made me a better doctor. I still have a long way to go, but yeah. Uh, I think that that was kind of a valuable reassurance from you going, okay, when I get burnt out, I just learn more and it kind of gives you a, a fresh lens to view the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Excellent. Well, is there anything else you want to cover before we get your contact information? Because I want to respect your time. We're coming up on an hour and if we count our uh Jockeying <laughs> with computers an hour and a half. <laughs> At least we got it to work. No, I'm all set. That was really great. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. So is there, what are the best channels to reach you at if people want to, well, I'm going to put links to everything and uh, on the articles that we talked about in your website. Is that the best avenue to, to get a hold of you? Yeah, if this is going to other chiropractors or other professionals, they can email me directly, tommisho at AOL.com. I've got that same AOL for the last 30 years, so it's easy to remember. If it's a question about a product, uh, humanlocomotion.org has got a, a contact point in there. 
But if you want any of the articles, I don't have them posted on the site, anything that I talked about, just shoot me a quick question. I've got 5,000 articles on my drive. I just will attach it and send it over. So, um, you know, any questions about anything I mentioned? Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time, Tom. And I know that we got some uh, great information and it was it was great to talk to you and and get to speak with you today. Hey, good talking to you as well, Nick. You, you did a great job. You're doing a great job. So thanks for having me on. You bet. Thanks, Tom. Hey, have a good one. You too. Bye-bye.